Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Currington as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 11. We're going to tackle a little bigger section today, 14 through 28, as we look at skeptical accusations and sentimental admiration. Skeptical accusations and sentimental admirations. Luke chapter 11. Let me give you a few words here and let's do a little word association. LeBron James, Kobe Bryant, wrestling, coffee, music from Barry Manilow or Taylor Swift, Christmas decorations and Christmas music and Christmas movies. What do these things all have in common? Anyone care to guess? Well, let me answer for you. These are all things that can be taken to the extremes. Either love it or you hate it. Or you want to see it destroyed or you want to see it thrive 365 days a year. It's either too much or not enough. And it's hard many times to find that right balance, right, of of, of how much of a thing is a good thing or how much of a good thing is a good thing. In most things in life, we can all agree to disagree, do we not? We we, we find things and say, well, you like coffee, well, I don't. You want Christmas movies all the time or I don't would like not to watch them at all or Christmas decorations, so on and so forth. And many times that's a life of balance is we give, uh, we're tolerant. We give ways to people to have different points of view. At least we used to. That's not so much the case now. However, we're going to talk about one subject that's not up for debate. Or should I say that has eternal consequences if you go to the wrong extreme, either right or left. There, there is a balance and it's and your eternal uh, life hinges on that. And that question is, is who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? In that question, you'll find a strict wrong or right answer. However, as we still see and have probably witnessed, even today, the answer to that question, who is Jesus, swings in many different extremes. One apologetic says, is Jesus a liar, a lunatic, Or is he Lord? Now, last week, Jesus taught the disciples how to pray more effectively with an encouragement to come before the Father with boldness and confidence and that he longs to hear from his children. What a wonderful encouragement we learned to know that God stops, he stoops, and he listens to the prayers of his children. Remember that, that imagery we had of last week. But the one thing that we needed to understand, though, in all that wonderful gift of prayer, prayer is not an exercise in manipulation or trying to convince the Father to give us what we want, but it's a time for you and I to align ourselves, our mind, our affections, and our will, our choices with the Father's will and His kingdom. Today, we're going to begin a new theme in Luke as he records several controversy that Jesus faces when he faces opposition to his ministry. Our passage this morning consists of extremes as some religious leaders accuse Jesus of collaborating with the enemy 
to the extreme where a woman who in her joy loses focus on the true object of faith. So with that, Luke chapter 11, let's look at verse 14. It's here on the screen to start off. Again, bring your Bibles. I want to encourage you. Take notes. uh, Highlight things. It's always a good way just to to remember what what we're reading. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute, Luke writes. And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. But some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. Father, give us wisdom. Thank you for this this record, uh, these eyewitness accounts that are captured here, that are stored, that are treasured and preserved for us this morning as we open up your pages here, that there is something here that is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. So let us do that work of digging into it, to read it, to understand it, to interpret it and then apply it through your Holy Spirit. Lord, for your glory and our good. Thank you for this opportunity. May we make the most of it, recognizing that one day we'll stand before God and give account of this 30, 40, 45 minutes that we have. Your name. Amen. By the way, just because I pray that we have 30, 40, 45 minutes doesn't mean I won't go to 50 or 55. So let's go ahead and go on. Jesus, continuing his trip to Jerusalem, comes across a man that's possessed with a demon that causes this man to be mute. He was not able to speak or to talk. We're not told anything else about the man. We don't know what his, what his job was. We don't know how long he was possessed by this demon. We don't know who, uh, uh, if he had a family. We don't know uh, what village he came from. However, his story is captured, as I said, for eternity. It is here for us to, to look at and to, to read and to consider. As Jesus stops and commands this demon to come out of him. And as with all of Jesus' miracles, this man's healing is instantaneous and complete. And for those of you who sometimes you, 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 may get, you might find yourselves uh, watching TBN or some of these other stations or pastors on YouTube that do healing. Uh, their healing is not the same healing that Jesus is doing. These are charlatans that I want to warn you about. Is that Jesus' ministries or healings were always instantaneous and complete. It was very, very evident, and it was permanent. This is important for us to understand. It's why they are given to us in Scripture. Now, Luke's eyewitnesses recount, eyewitnesses recount that there were four distinct reactions to this man's healing. You're going to see four reactions to this healing of the man who was possessed by the demon. The first is that some of the people marveled, meaning that they, be, they, 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 they wondered And they were utterly amazed at what Jesus was doing, that he was able to cast out a demon, that this man was able to speak. And this is a common and proper response to the power and authority of Jesus, especially as we read through that many people were amazed at his miracles, astonished at his teaching. And this is the proper response. The second response was another group who rejected Jesus' authority. And they accused Jesus of being in cahoots with Satan. They, they saw the same miracle. They saw the same demon man or man uh, possessed by a demon uh, uh, being eradicated from him, being able to speak. But they accused him of being in cahoots with Satan. Beelzebub, which meant Lord of the flies, was one of the false gods 
of the Philistines. The third group was the skeptics. They were skeptical of Jesus' power and authority, and they demanded more signs of cosmological significance. They wanted to see the handwriting in the sky. You ever see that? Why why doesn't God just write in the sky, you know, and tell us that he's here? Why why doesn't he he do something uh, to make the heavens uh, be displayed in such a way that they can recognize that he is here, not realizing that Romans tells us that's exactly what God does. The fourth was a woman who allows her feelings, her sentiment to lead her astray as to what is the true object of worship. Now, let's take each of these groups and look at them very quickly. Now, the response of the first group is the correct response, as I said before, to the man, the message, and the ministry of Jesus Christ. Luke has already laid the foundation for us that Jesus is both the son of God and the son of man. He is the divine human. As we, as we come upon the Christmas season, this is the time that we take to consider the incarnation of Christ and what it means that he was both divine and human, that he came and that was Emmanuel, God with us. The Bible tells us in John's gospel that God became flesh. You'll see it here on the screen. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In other words, in the beginning when God created the heavens and earth, there was the word. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. But then dropping down to verse 14, I believe it says, and the word became flesh telling us who this word was that was in the beginning, who had a hand in creation and he dwelt among us speaking of Jesus. And we have seen his glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The proper response to the work of Christ that you and I read in scripture and understand within our hearts is worship. And make, make no mistake, Jesus, the Trinity, is still in the miracle working business. Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, still heals the brokenhearted, encourages the faint, brings comfort and healing to the broken, and opens the hearts that are blinded by sin. Just several weeks ago, we sadly was talking to a friend. And then they believe that because we're cessationists, that we believe that the Holy Spirit is no longer working because we don't believe in tongues or healings or the gift of knowledge. And we believe those as cease as the Bible teaches us. However, we believe that the Holy Spirit has been working from the beginning. To say that the Holy Spirit only started at Pentecost is to say that there was no Trinity in the beginning. But our God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He has been working throughout all of eternity. And the Holy Spirit still works in healing and giving knowledge and understanding through the Holy Spirit of giving us through his God's word. Now the response of the second group, those that rejected the authority of Christ, was another common response. Take your Bibles if you would and turn back to the fifth book of the Bible, Deuteronomy 13. We looked at this several years ago, but I want to look at it again because it helps us understand maybe what's going on here as they're accusing Jesus of being a demon. At first glance, you and I may want to just condemn these men. However, 
these men did have a responsibility and a duty to interview and investigate Jesus, to to look at his his teaching and his miracles. In verse 1 of Deuteronomy chapter 13, we read these instructions from Moses. He writes, if a prophet or a dreamer of dream arises among you, and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign and wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after another god or other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer for dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. He goes on to say, you shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him, keep his commandments and obey his voice. And you shall serve him and hold fast to him. Speaking of Yahweh. But in verse five, he says, but that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave in the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. So in here, they are given the authority and the responsibility to test anyone who came with signs and wonders. So it would be proper for them at first to be cautious. Remember, they have been waiting anciently for centuries for the Messiah, the Redeemer, the chosen servant of God, the son of David, to come and rescue them now from Roman rule and reinstate the throne of David. This was the, the heart, the joy, the anticipation, the dreams of every Jewish man and woman and child. They had experienced, though, the rising of many who proclaimed to be the Messiah, who drew large groups of followers and made bold statements and grand promises. Yet each and every one of them proved to be false, leading many to their deaths and sowing discouragement among the people. As once again, they were disappointed that he was not the Messiah, that he had not come. And you can understand that. You know, you get a promise and all of a sudden you think that promise is ready to be fulfilled. You're anticipating, but then the, they say, oh, maybe tomorrow. Oh, well, maybe tomorrow. Well, maybe tomorrow. Eventually you just stop believing because the discouragement is so strong. Most likely they thought Jesus was just another one of those flash in the plan, pans, a self-promoting would-be Messiah. However, as you and I know, they were very wrong. Those that rejected Jesus blatantly accused him of being an undercover agent of Satan, believe it or not. However, as Thomas Schreiner notes, Jesus uses an array of logical and biblical arguments to combat their skepticism and accusations. Look at going back to Luke chapter 11. Look at verse 18. As Jesus responds to their accusations that he's an agent of Satan. In verse 17, I'm sorry, verse 17, but knowing their thoughts, verse 17, but knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and a divided household falls. Everyone, no one knows this. This is a logical, logical thought. It's not the enemy from without that you and I have to be concerned with. It's the enemy within. Every nation, empire that has been destroyed that has failed, has failed from within, not from without. 
In the same way, the church doesn't fail typically from pressure outside. It's from within. In the same way, marriages, families, they're not destroyed from the pressures without, but from the pressures within. Verse 18, and if Satan also is divided against himself, in other words, if he is attacking and casting out demons himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Another logical question, argument. Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. You may want to circle, underline that phrase, finger of God. Jesus plainly informs them that it makes no sense for Satan to attack himself. That would be silly and self-destructive. Not only that, but their accusations were contradictory since their own sons practice exorcism. In other words, Jesus was asking, are all your Jewish exorcists working for Satan also? Or of course, they would never agree with that assertion as they believe that their sons and their families were exercising, were part of Yahweh's plan. However, Jesus was not, they would say. Instead, Jesus tells them that his miracle working power is actually the finger of God at work among them. Remember back in uh, Exodus when Moses is sent to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And he says, well, who is it that's sending you this? And he says, it's the I am. Well, who's the I am? And, he, and they begin to do some miracles. Remember, he throws down a stick, turns into a snake. You might remember that, that story. You may have seen it through movies. But then what do the two magicians do? Or the magicians? We don't know how many they are. What do the magicians do? They throw down their sticks. And what happens? They become snakes. Now, what's not usually thought of is our snake ate all their snakes up. But there you go. But then as we go on with the story is then, then Moses does a couple more. But at the same time, the magicians do what? They do the same thing. Yet when it comes to the fourth plague, we read that they could not duplicate it. And they had to admit to Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 18, verse 19, or 8, verses 19. Listen to this. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, Concerning the plagues, this is the finger of God. This is the finger of God. This is from God. We cannot do this. This is a sign. This is something that's happening at the hand of God. Go back to Daniel chapter 5 if you want to turn there very quickly. We read it earlier in our scripture reading. It's another Old Testament. We've already read that here they are, they're eating, they're having fine dining, they're they're enjoying, and then they're taking the holy things of God and they're using them to drink from and to eat from, misusing, dishonoring the very things of God. And what do we see? At that moment, the finger of God begins to write on the wall. In verse 18 of Daniel chapter 5, they bring Daniel. Tell us what this means. O king, the most high God, gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. We talked about that story last week. 
And because of the greatness that he gave them, all the peoples and nations and language trembled and feared before him. Whom would he kill and whom he would he kept alive? Whom he would he raised up and whom he would he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened, so he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and glory was taken from him and he was driven from among the children of mankind. Remember that story. And his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of the harvest, until he knew the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. Nebuchadnezzar learned who God was, the Most High God, in the most difficult of way. But look at verse 22. And you, son, and you, his son, Belshazzar, You have not humbled your heart, though you knew what happened to your father. Remember when you were a young man, maybe when you were a teenager, and your father was out like a beast for seven years, living like an animal. Do you not recall what happened? You're repeating the same mistakes of your father. You have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords, your wives, your concubines have drunk wine from them. You have praised the gods of silver, gold, of bronze and iron and wood and stone, which you do not see or do not know. But God in whose hand is your breath and who are all your ways, you have not honored. All of that again to say the finger of God. Now here's something I want you to consider with that simple phrase that we might read very quickly from Luke chapter 11. These events from the Torah would have been very familiar to these religious leaders and to these men who are watching what Jesus is doing. And most likely it would have been brought to their remembrance when Jesus declares that his own miracle working power, his delivering that man from the, from the demon, from allowing that man now to speak again, was the very finger of God. That, that would have brought them back to those two instances. Some might say that not only was Jesus setting at liberty those who were held captive. Remember, that's what he says. That's why I'm here. He's setting captive one who was held captive by, by enslaved by a demon. But also like Moses and Daniel, he was pronouncing judgment on those who display unbelief, disobedience, and disregarded the wonder-working power of God. So it works in both ways. It's a judgment. God himself is entering here and he's showing you his handiwork. He is displaying his glory. He is displaying his authority. He is displaying his amazing power. We have to keep in mind that Jesus' authority over the natural and supernatural were not just for entertainment or self-promotion but to signify that God himself has entered into human history and time in order to redeem his people from their sin. That time has now arrived. It was to signify that Jesus was more than just a mere man, but that he was the Messiah who was ushering in the kingdom of God. Professor Schreiner writes that the dramatic work of expelling Demons is not a sign that Jesus is aligned with Satan, as they accuse him of, but a definite sign 
of the coming of the kingdom of God in his ministry. Remember, the kingdom is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It was the finger of God. Jesus continues in verse 21 of Luke chapter 11. Go back. In laying out his case, when he says, when a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. That that makes sense, right? But when one stronger than he attacks and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. You and I can understand that. Using common sense, Jesus uses the illustration of a strong man who's well-equipped, who has mighty men with him, who has all the weapons to defend his home. And by that, he, he is ready to defend his home. And so he enjoys peace because he's the strong man. He's the apex. Unless someone stronger, better equipped, comes and attacks. And what we see here is that Jesus is stating quite frankly that he is the strong man who comes and overtakes Satan. Very simply, you see it here on the screen, young man, is you and I need to understand this, is that Jesus is greater than Satan. Jesus is the strong man who overtakes Satan. And he demonstrates his greatness by casting out the demon of this unknown man and allowing him and giving him back the ability to speak. We read in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, that Jesus at the cross disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame. He triumphed over them. In other words, Jesus not only kicked down the door, defeated the strong man, but he bound him, and then he threw him out of his own house and put him to open shame to everyone by saying, I live here. This is my home. That's what he's saying for you and I. Instead of being an undercover agent of Satan, Jesus has come to destroy the works of the devil and his disruption of the world and the works of demons is proof that he is from Yahweh, the finger of God. Well, that's the second group. The third group, Described in our passage today is that of the skeptics. And I find this is probably many in the world. We have some today who accept what Je- who Jesus is. There's some who would say, well, you know what? I think he's just from Satan. There's nothing about Jesus. He, he was just nothing. And then there's others who are skeptics. Well, maybe he was just a moral man, a good teacher. Not quite sure who he is. Luke writes that this group set out to test Jesus. Seeking from him a sign from heaven just goes to prove that even those that witnessed the greatest miracles of Jesus still were not satisfied of his authority and authenticity. There will always be those who will want more miracles, more proof, more evidence that Jesus is the son of God. You hear it all the time. If I could only see Jesus do this, then I would believe him. If I could just see him perform miracles, I would believe him. If Jesus is truly God, then show me a sign today. But even those who witnessed those did not believe. And it brings into remembrance that even a disciple whose feet were cleaned by Jesus then proceeded to put on his sandals, walk out and betray him. 
The Apostle Paul describes this phenomenon of seeking of skeptics, of seeking signs. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, and he writes that Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. In other words, that means the Jews, they just want to see signs that they see of the Old Testament. Do for us the works of Elijah and Elisha. Do the works of Moses and Aaron. Entertain us. Show us some great works. Whereas the Gentiles, the Greeks, say, well, no, give us some wisdom. Give us a new philosophy. Give us a new way of thinking. We saw this in Acts, uh, I, I'm not sure what chapter, uh, when he goes to Mars Hill. And they even have a, 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 an idol marked to the unknown God. We, we just want to hear what you have to say. So there's more who want to see more things of God. Do us more miracles. Do more healings. Take me. Make me more rich. Make my life better. Make every day like Friday. Then there's others who say, no, just make me more wisdom. Make make it more sense. Scripture has informed us that not only has the God of this world, Satan, blinded the minds of man that he cannot see God, but also these very rejectors of God, these skeptics, God has given them easily things that they may see and discern about God. God has left all of humanity a witness of himself in creation. You've heard me say it before. The birth of a little child is a finger of God. To look in a microscope into the tiniest atom of this world is the finger of God. To take something like the Hubble telescope and to see the beauty of the universe and the massive scope of the universe that he measures with just the span of his hand describes to us that there must be a creator. But yet still we say, give me more. Give me more. Come down and speak to us. Then we reject the very one when he came down and spoke to us. Give us more knowledge. And then we reject the word of God that gives us the very knowledge and revelation of God. Not only has he given us just natural knowledge, but he's also given us the special revelation through the incarnation of Christ that we're going to be celebrating for these next few weeks, as well as the word of God that gives us testimony to the finger of God, Christ himself. Going on in verse 24, Jesus continues to instruct them in their error by telling them a parable. Here he now goes to more of a spiritual biblical reason. He says, when the unclean spirit is gone out of a person, speaking of a demon, it passes through the waterless places seeking rest. In other words, it's, it doesn't want to go to the abyss, but it's restless. It has no place to rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to the house where I came from, speaking of the person. And when it comes, it finds the house, it's swept and put in order. All of their damage has been undone. Verse 26, and it goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the person is worse than the first. This parable refers to his adversaries, to those who had opportunity to see and accept Jesus, but rejected him. Jesus comes, and through the Holy Spirit, he cleans house. He lets them see the finger of God, but yet they truly reject him. And by rejecting him, they are now worse off than when they met Jesus. The warning goes to those today who have experienced the working of the Holy Spirit 
but in the end have rejected him in Christ. In Hebrews chapter 6, we see this warning, verse 4. It's here on the monitor. For it is impossible in the case that those who have been enlightened and those who have tasted the Holy Spirit, who have seen God's work, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, but then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding up to content. In other words, to taste and see that God is good and then to vomit it out of your mouth, to walk away from him, it, it gives a warning that you may not ever get again the taste of that Holy Spirit. He may remove himself from you. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 20, the apostle Peter warns in the same way. He says, for if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. This is talking about the parable of the soils. Of the one, remember, the, it's, the first, it's put the, 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 the seed is, is thrown on the, the path. Satan takes that away. Then others, it falls on rocky soil. It may grow up just a little bit, but then it's, it's taken away. And then the other is in the weeds. The cares of this world comes and they're so enthralled with the world to say, yeah, I love God. I like the things he says, but I'd rather have this. That's what he's saying. It's not talking about losing your salvation. It's talking about those who truly were not yet believers, but God was bringing, they were seeing the good things of God. They were convinced intellectually, maybe even in their emotions, but yet when it came to their heart, the choice, the desire to follow God, to choose to walk in faith, they did not do so. In verse 21, he says, for it would have been better for them to never have known the way of righteousness than after knowing to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. How many of us have known people who accepted Christ or made a profession of faith, I should say, seemed excited about the things of Christ, excited about going to church, being part of the body of Christ, got involved, began even sharing the gospel with others. But then they began to slowly fall away to where they're no longer in church. They no longer have the desires of the things of Christ. There is no fruit of the Holy Spirit there's a warning that there may not be a place for them to come back again. See, we must recognize that we're held accountable for what we do with the things of God, the words of God, the teachings of God. But let me go to the fourth group. This group only consists of one lady who in verse 27 is overwhelmed with joy as she listens and watches Jesus heal and then teaches to the disciple or to disciples or teaches to the people. She states in verse 27, and as Jesus said these things, there's a woman in the crowd who raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nurse. She wants to bless Mary. Sound familiar? This woman rightly understands that Jesus is someone, something special. She recognizes that he is a miracle working uh, worker and that his teaching is sent from heaven. 
She is marveling and astonished. She, she's responding correctly at first. However, like many people, she puts her praise and her object of faith in the wrong place. She wants to bless Jesus' mother as if Jesus' mother has done something special. Is she more favored? Is she favored? Yes. But yet that doesn't make her holy. That doesn't make her sinless or perfect. Jesus puts her in her place. She's like the Hebrew children who worshiped the bronze serpent in the wilderness. Remember that story in Numbers. Again, the Hebrew children were in the wilderness and they disobey God. And God in his judgment sends these serpents, these snakes, and begins to bite the people. And they begin to, to burn with, with, with fever and, and, and the high temperature. And Moses calls out and says, can you not give these people relief? And God in his mercy says, all right, build me a serpent out of bronze, put it on a, put it on a stick, set it in the middle, and that anyone who looks at that stick, that bronze serpent, they will be healed. So people were brought to this front, front, front of this serpent. They looked upon the serpent, their temperature went down, and they were healed. And their life was given back to them. That's a great miracle, but what we find is if you continue in the, uh, new, uh, the Old Testament, probably I think Mike and Jesse have been working their way through uh, many of the books you've probably already gotten to it, is that 400 years or 100 years later, we find that Israel are now worshiping that stick. So a king finally takes it, breaks it down, and burns it. I believe that's one reason we will not find the Ark of the Covenant today. Why? Because we tend to worship things rather than the person. And that's what she's doing here. This poor woman is, is moved by sentimental feelings and say, well, as a mother, then we must bless the mother because look at how wonderful you are. Your mother must be much more wonderful. That's an error. Her object of faith is not in Christ, but in the mother who has done nothing in this regard. Again, we're all guilty of worshiping things rather than the cursed person. We all many times find ourselves worshiping gifts rather than the giver, of putting other things rather than God as the object of our faith. Today, you and I have many false gods. Many times it's ourself, right? It's our intellect, our ability, our, 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 our uh, ability to make money or to care for others. Maybe it's in the government is your object of worship. They'll take care of me. Or maybe it's some medical experts. Well, they'll tell me when I can walk outside and be safe. Or maybe it's social programs or all sorts of things that you and I look to for care, for comfort, and for support. Rather than the father instead of allowing this woman to continue with this sentiment he declares in verse 28 but he said blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it you need to underline that highlight that in your bible you need to memorize that portion it's not my mom who needs to be venerated it's those who read the word of God and keep it. That is who is blessed. Going back to what the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthian church, you and I must not search for signs like the Jews, nor wisdom like the Gentiles, but we need to search the scripture. 
For you and I have the finger of God today. It's the word of God. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 21. You'll see it here on the monitor. For since in the wisdom of God, the world, of, the world did not know God through wisdom. It's not through philosophies. It's not through uh, different uh, the religions that you will find God. But it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. But we preach Christ crucified. If we were to continue, we read the other verse earlier. It is foolishness to the Jew or to the Gentile and a stumbling block to the Jew. They want signs. They want wisdom and philosophy. But God says, all I can give you is everything that you need. The finger of God, a crucified savior. That's who I give to you. Let us not fall into either of the last groups. Please do not find yourself as an accuser or a skeptic, or a sentimentalist. But of the first group, those who have marveled at the works and teachings of Jesus Christ. Piper, uh, <laughs> Piper, Pastor John Piper tweeted just yesterday about those who rely on things other than the words of Scripture, especially those today who, who, wor- who look for dreams and visions and words of knowledge from God. Those people relying on their dreams reject authority. Dreams may feel extraordinary while the written words of scripture might feel ordinary. But after the incarnation, nothing is more extraordinary than that God has given us his authority in writing. Let me make a quick pastoral editorial note. Is there is a group of books called, uh, called Jesus Calling. Someone brought attention to me. They even made one now for children. And at first, this sounds wonderful, and people are clamoring for this book, just as they clamored for The Secret and all these other types of things. But let me tell you, Jesus Calling, the reason why it's such a dangerous book is because this young lady has said, I hear directly from God. So when you buy my book and you open the pages of Jesus Calling and any of its uh, devotionals or any of its books, what you're getting is the very word of God because all I do is dictate exactly what Jesus tells me. Christians are buying it because it's it's in the religious section. I want to hear something different from God. We're always looking for something different, something extraordinary rather than just the ordinary preaching that Jesus Christ is crucified. Bible says that we're not to look to visions and dreams. We're not to look for angels. He says in days past, God has worked through those, but now we have something much more sure. And then Paul goes, or Peter, excuse me, goes on to say, you have something more sure than when I was on the hill with, J- with James and John and we saw Moses and Elijah. It's the word of God. You're looking for the finger of God. It's found in God's word. You're looking for Christ, it's found, he is found in God's word through the work of the Holy Spirit. So you and I need to be careful as we we are bombarded with so many new things. Let me give you a new thing. Let me give you something different. God has said something new and different. Let me tell you, that is the same error and the same uh, um, uh, uh, blasphemy that comes from the Book of Mormon. 
Hey, I received these new words of God, another testament of Jesus Christ. But you and I clamor, and I'm not accusing you, but I'm just saying we clamor as Christians then for Jesus calling, for the secret, for other things that are not of God. Look back at with me at Luke chapter 11. For there's one passage, one verse that we have not seen. And you definitely need to highlight this, underline this. Because in Luke 23, Jesus warns those who reject him. Whoever is not with me is what? Against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. This is a dire warning and one that you and I must take seriously. We must be sure that we never find ourselves fighting against the very work of Christ, advancing any agenda other than the kingdom of God or worshiping anything other than God himself. This is the unforgivable sin. The unforgivable sin is to deny the work of the Holy Spirit in the message and ministry of Jesus Christ. This is the time of the year as we begin to close This is the time of year that it's good for us to ask and answer the question, who do you say Jesus is? Is he truly the reason for the season? I invite you to ask your family, your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors, this question, who do you say Jesus is? Then direct them to the scripture. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, a book written back in the 40s during World War II, well, it was, it was published afterwards, but it was a series of radio broadcasts that he gave to encourage the, the Brits during World War II and the bombing of London. It was then collected in a book called Mere Christianity. He writes this. I'll put it on the monitor so you can follow along. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that is Christ. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, they say. But I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the words that we just read here of the skeptics and the accusers. That is the one thing, C.S. Lewis writes, that we must not say. A man who is merely a man and and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be a false teacher. He would be a liar. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. And that's the accusation. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he is a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Again, you and I have much to be thankful for this Christmas season. And as we head into this Christmas season and reflect on the advent of Christ, let us find encouragement in the words of Dr. Shiner, who writes about this passage that leads us to praise God especially when we reflect on the strong man, Jesus is greater. Look at what he says here. Let us also praise God for all of us once belonged in Satan's house and lived under his control. But Jesus raided his house 
defeated Satan and set us free. We are liberated from Satan's authority and power through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen. I pray that that's you here today. And as we get ready here to close, I want to ask you, I want to beg you, who do you say Jesus is? Do you believe that he is the son of God, the very finger of God, God himself? Have you come to accept who he is and what he's done on our behalf? And that God has pleased with the works of Christ. And if we turn and repent from our sin, confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, and we turn and put our trust in what Jesus has done, God says that he will come and regenerate our hearts, making us new, justify us, declare us right, and then adopt us as his sons. What a wonderful gift to have. I pray that you do so today. If not, would you come see me? Randy, we'd love to share with you how you can know that you truly are born again. For who do you say Jesus is? We have people at different extremes just as we have in this passage today. But in the end, we must have the answer that is true and biblical. Let us find hope in the words of John who writes in 1 John chapter 4, 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome him. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. All of God's people said... We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help share the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.